This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. With Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. Hello and welcome to the Accounting Influencers Podcast, a rapidly growing show for accountants and firms, plus those who serve them, sell to them and sell to them. It features accountancy, fintech news and commentary analysis of that news and how it applies to you as accountants in practice. You also get practical what works tips and experts interviews. This is CPE or CPD accredited. It's social media promoted. It's commercially backed. We have 22,000 listeners right now all over the world in 150 countries, predominantly in the UK and the US. And I'm Rob Brown, one of your co-hosts, along with Martin Bissett. And let's get started with today's show. It's time for the news here on the Accounting Influencer Podcast. I'm Rob Brown, one of your hosts. And generally alongside me is Martin Bissett. Not today. I am flying solo. It's where we pick up in this episode uh, little things that are happening in the news around the world that impact accounting practitioners. These can be opinion pieces, news pieces, research insights that we find, mergers, acquisitions, all kinds of things going on. There's a lot for you to do in your role to stay ahead of the game. So we just pick out some key bits for you that it is worthwhile being aware of. And uh, I'm picking out something from accountingweb.co.uk this week, a part of the SIFT group. And they have some great commentators, journalists, media experts. But this one comes from a friend of ours here at Accounting Influencers uh, called Carl Reader. Carl runs his own firm based here in the UK, DT. They have uh, a handle on the franchise market. So I believe Subway are one of their clients here in the UK. You'll know our international listeners. Subway, Carl does a lot also with uh, the health side of things, gyms, martial arts practices. His firm's very big on those, one of the biggest players around with things like that. And uh, Carl's a big personality. He uh, he's seconded to a number of professional uh, and corporate brands to be a speaker on behalf of small business. He works with the ACCA and a number of vendors. And he's done a great piece here called The Answer to the Skills Shortage is in Your Hands. Now, Martin and I have a lot of conversations with accountants who are generally feeling that, what's it all about? What's my legacy? Is this meaningful work? Is this purposeful? It speaks to the great resignation, doesn't it? People are asking, is there more than this? Am I being chained to a desk? Am I being forced to do boring, mundane work? Is the technology just taking over and they don't need personalities and people anymore? So Carl writes a really insightful piece where he starts with this phrase, the lack of young blood coming into the profession is apparent to us all. And Martin and I have spoke about that in the past. We know there's a, a drain on talent. We've spoken about the labor shortage, not just in accounting and finance, but across many, many sectors. So Carl asked the question, so why not pass on your skills to the next generation by teaching in further education? So what does he mean by this? And I just love this idea of giving something back and doing something more meaningful. I work a lot with accounting firms on their employer brand, and I help them tell the stories through video interviewing their staff. And the questions that new potential new recruits talent are asking when they come into a firm now is what are you doing to make a difference in your community? We talk about environmental and social governance. We talk about CSR corporate social responsibilities. We even talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, the DEI agenda, and how are you getting involved in helping society? What are you doing that's making a difference beyond making money for your partners and your firm? So Carl Reader 
poses this question and he says, whether you work in industry practice or the public sector as an accountant, you know there's a skills shortage facing the sector. We're all getting older, technology is moving fast, and there's simply not enough skilled new learners entering our profession to address the talent shortage that we are already experiencing. Now that is fact. We are requiring hundreds of thousands of accountants to come into the profession over the next few years to fulfill the demand. But we've asked this question before on the Accounting Influencers podcast, how attractive is accounting as a career choice, as a profession? And what sectors are we losing out to? Now, Carl remarks, this is not a new trend. He says, and he, he does know this firsthand, he says, recruiting fresh talent is getting harder and the number of skilled students applying to enter the industry, we're, we're letting go on calling it an industry, <laughs> is in decline. There are a variety of reasons why this could be happening. And there are fears around the role of accountant being automated and some are attracted to other roles requiring their analytical tendencies, such as the world of venture finance. On top of these, he remarks, the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated, for those of you that don't know what that means, worsened, exacerbated matters, and led to what is being called the great resignation across all industries. So his solution to the problem, pass it on. He says there's a something many of us working in accounting can do to address the skill shortage, and that is passing your knowledge on to a new generation. And he says teaching and further education, FE we call it here in the UK, and that's Tertiary education, it's its below university level, it's below grad level, but it's in the colleges and, and further ed places that are perhaps a little bit more vocational. And Carl says, it's a great way for qualified accountants to support the next generation of learners with their skills and inspire them to enter the accounting profession. Do you feel a responsibility for that? Even if you're doing it selfishly, what does that look like on your resume, your curriculum vitae, if you're putting back into society like this? Further education, he says, offers technical and vocational courses that aim to equip learners with practical work-based skills. We did a piece here on the Accounting Influencers news section a couple of weeks ago called The Best City for Accountants, Does It Matter? And we looked at some research on what are the best cities for accountants to work in here in the UK, and we took those lessons and applied those internationally. London came out on top, Liverpool was mentioned, and one of the factors in here was the amount of accountancy and finance courses available at all levels so accountants could hone their skills and perhaps teach others skills. So this is very pertinent. Further education is study, usually for learners 16 plus that takes place after secondary school or high school. And FE providers can include sixth form or high school, specialist colleges, prisons, it can be the next step for young people in school leavers, but equally accessible to adults looking to broaden their skills or change careers. The industry background is highly valued. It means the accounting world is highly valued in FE, teaching you skills to share your real life experiences, to bring the theory alive. So this is where you accountants can make a difference with your personal brand, with your contribution to the greater good, because he says, Carl says, your skills are more valuable than you realize and those interested in teaching and passing on those skills lecture don't have to have any formal teaching qualifications. You don't need a degree to get started. You just need a passion, an interest, a desire, an intention to do something alongside your existing role. And it could be perfect for those in accounting that are looking for a little bit more variety in their career. So what a wonderful piece. We'll put the link to the piece via Accounting Web into your show notes here if you want to pass this on. Carl just uh, 
says a little bit more about the sharing your skills to the next generation helps prepare them to enter the working world. As a former high school maths teacher, I was always frustrated by what I was teaching children in classrooms wasn't necessarily relevant to real life. Who needs algebra in real life unless you're going to be a scientist or an astronaut or a physicist or an engineer? Who needs Pythagoras? Who needs... We need budget skills. We need financial literacy, don't we? So... <sighs> I'm banging a drum here too with you, Carla. I totally get this. Sharing skills with the next generation gives you an increased sense of purpose in your working life. Giving back, sharing your skills and experience, you are uniquely placed to make a real difference in someone's life. The fulfillment that can come from this goes beyond any job satisfaction of reconciling a bank account or balancing a balance sheet. Amen, Carl. We hear you. And let's get a final thought from Claire Benison. She's head of the Association of Chartered Certified Accountants uh, in the UK, that's the ACCA, a big global organization. And she says, accountants are critical to building and sustaining economies. They're rightly in demand to do this, but we need to attract more young people to join the profession. And teaching them further education, there is a campaign for this, is a brilliant way to engage newcomers and to support the next generation of talent who will be ready to take on the challenges of a more digital and people-focused profession. It's also a rewarding way of professional accountants to pay it forward, to share their own expertise, experience, and knowledge, to inspire younger generations about the benefits of being a qualified accountant while sharpening their own skills. Claire's really passionate. I've interviewed her before. Wonderful, wonderful woman. She's blazing a trail here to get us involved in nurturing this younger generation, the Gen Zs, even some of the younger millennials. But we're speaking to you as well because you're responsible now for the alpha generation. That is the next generation coming through. They're teenagers and, and primary school, kindergarten kids right now. They're going to be in the workplace in 10 years or so. And how are we gearing them up to enter? By sharing the skills and experience you've gained from your years in accounting you can make a difference in people's lives. So that is the news for you to consider something else, a way of giving back. Yes, this is an opinion piece, but this came out over the last few weeks and it's really relevant speaking into the labor shortage, the war for talent. If you've got an employer brand for your accounting firm, what are you doing to encourage your staff to work in further education or to empower the younger generation coming through behind them? What a sense of purpose that would give them. Food for thought, great stuff. Thank you, Carl Reader, Claire Benison. Thank you for Accounting Web, and we'll give you the link, like we said. Give it some thought. There's a lot in here. Improve your practice while decreasing how hard you work to make your firm really fly. Really fly. The Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. Welcome to our expert interview today, and I'm thrilled to have with me today from Texas, Susan Bryan. Hello, Susan. Hey, Rob. Good morning. It's nice to see you. It is good afternoon here in the UK in Nottingham, home of Robin Hood. But yes, we are international with our podcast. It's lovely to have you on with us. Susan, for people that haven't come across you, tell us a little bit about your, you and your world. Sure. So I'm a CPA. I am a partner at a firm based out of Plano, Texas. And we are specializing in the transformation of companies by professionalizing the finance function in their organizations. So I have a little bit of a recipe that I follow, a formula, if you will, that if we have solid accounting records and we combine that with tax planning and strategy, then we yield enterprise value and the achievement of personal and professional goals. And I think that that is a universal 
formula and recipe for every business owner's success. So we take that and we replicate it over and over and over again. That's a fabulous formula. I'm going to ask you to repeat that and just dive into a little bit of depth for each component, Susan, because there's a lot of wrongs we're going to put right today, a lot of things that need to be said, a few things that need to be changed in the accounting world, and you're going to help us do that today. So just say that formula again. Sure. So accounting, solid accounting. So we're talking about regimented, disciplined accounting process, processes that yield reliable financial data on a timely and consistent basis. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot just right there. But investing in your finance function is the most important thing a business owner can do. It's not a cost center. It's an opportunity center. And business owners have got to spend some time building that into their business from the get-go. And if they don't have it, even if they're established, they got to go back and rebuild it because it is the future of, of their enterprise. So you're talking like those things should happen. Do they not happen sometimes in a business? Uh, they routinely routinely don't happen. Um, and a lot of the times, you know, you know, especially as a person who is kind of, I'm, I'm seeing it from the CPA, I look through the CPA lens, right? A lot of times when I see is people start businesses and they don't start the business to become great accountants. That's not why they start the business. They, they just have to learn accounting because that's uh, fundamental to the business operations and ultimately to for performance and tax filings and many of these other, you know, requirements and expectations of a business owner, but they don't start it. They don't start their business to become great at accounting. So they try to DIY it. They don't really find the right people to help them. They don't set things up correctly. So they're not creating standardized processes within their own business. And that includes the accounting function. So, and without that standardization, you know, they get sideways, they get lost. Many sleepless nights when tax time rolls around, it's panic fear. How can I owe this much in taxes? You know, there's no way this is possible. I mean, there's so many different things that come out of this and it's avoidable. So that's sort of the first component of that, that recipe is really getting that accounting function perfect. And you, you got to keep improving it. It's just like anything else in your business. You build it, you refine it, you change it again, you refine it, you improve it. I mean, it's a relentless improvement mindset, right? Tax planning is key. As your business is making money, or even if you're losing money, you've got to understand whether or not that's going to benefit you, or if you're making money, how you're going to mitigate those taxes, what are those strategies, what can you be doing? You know, the tax code really offers up uh, across the world many incentives for business owners to really leverage how they spend their money. Just many of them, it's an afterthought. So tax planning is becoming more future-oriented. Yes, we have to do the compliance piece. We have to file tax returns. All that has to be done, but we're sort of changing the focus from you know, the rear view mirror to the windshield. We need to be focused on changing the future, right? And that's sort of what leads to this secondary component or third component, which is the strategy. Where is your business going? What are you trying to, what's your intentions? You know, what are you trying to accomplish? You know, aligning your overall mission in your business. What do you really want to accomplish personally, professionally? How do you want to change your industry? How do you want to change people's lives? And aligning that with everything that you do day in, day out, and each person's function in the organization, that strategy, that moves your business from point A to point B. It seems so logical when you say it. Are accountants best place to advise their business clients on these kind of things? There's nobody else, right? Well, I mean, there is a great starting point. So they need to really focus on the finance piece of it. The accounting is what drives everything in a business. <laughs> it drives everything. Everything comes back to the accounting. I mean, you want to sell your company, you're going to look at financials to see how much it's worth, right? You want to evaluate cash flow, you're going to go look at the financials. Um, you want to look at uh, the, the value of your intellectual property, your customer list, your assets, where are you going to go? You go to your financials. So 
Yeah, it, I think that the thing for business owners is that in a lot of situations, they just don't understand the importance. Whose fault is that? Well, it's a little bit of, it's a little bit of both parties, right? So the first is, is that accountants aren't very good about being future oriented. Um, they're not very good at, at being advisors and strategists. They've uh, become complacent in that, you know, they just, I'm just a tax preparer. I'm just filing your tax returns. And that's because there's such a significant amount of work associated with that. They are practitioners and not necessarily the best business people. So they haven't figured out how to delegate. I met with a woman late, just it was like the last week. And she said, you either do it, you delegate it, or you dump it. And I was like, genius. I mean, that's a great way to think about it. And business owners need to be doing the same thing. Um, but most of the time they're just focused on revenue and they're on the hamster wheel, right? They're just doing day in and day out, all the things that they normally do. And they're not really focused on the strategy. So they got to find people to help them. So it's, it's a little bit of both. CPAs need to refocus on strategy and helping their business owners move forward and talking to them in that way changing the messaging, changing the dialogue, taking the time, reworking engagements to build that in. It's got to be built in. It's not just a tax return and I'll do some bank reconciliations for you. Like that's not valuable. You call it an industry. We, we call it a profession. What kind of shape do you feel the accounting world is in right? Uh, well, I, I feel like there's sort of this, uh, a little bit of an energy, if you will, sort of growing about uh, the revolution that needs to happen. So we sort of have bad reputation in public accounting for uh, overworking people, not growing people in the right ways, um, not providing the right opportunities, and just overloading people with a bunch of tasks instead of helping them to have a pathway forward. And, and, and what happens is, is we're not giving them the tools in their tool belt to become the advisors that they need to be. So that's part of it. You know, there's just a lot of different components to that. Um, we're undervaluing ourselves. I mean, I'm in a ton of Facebook groups where CPAs and other people who are, you know, enrolled agents and things like that are, I mean, it's crazy to me, the work that they are doing. I mean, they're literally killing themselves for next to nothing. And I don't understand that at all. Where must that come from though, that undervaluing yourself? Because they do very valuable work. Is it a proximity bias, Susan, where they get so close to what they're doing, they can't see how much it's worth to the client? Uh, no, I think it's fear. I think it's all fear. I think that they're afraid to lose the client. They're afraid to upset the client. They're, it's fear. It's 100% fear. Afraid to charge more for what they're doing? <laughs> they're just afraid to, I mean, we actually met with a guy not too long ago who was interested in selling his practice, right? You know, his book of business to us. I mean, he was an older gentleman and I mean, it was insane. The prices that he was charging, they're so low. And we asked him, you know, well, why didn't you raise your prices? And, and he said, I was afraid to lose the client. And I think we've got to change our mindset a little bit here. It's not necessarily about losing the client. It's, it's a, we've got to have enough resources on our team to do the work that's valuable for them. And so that means we've got to charge them more to offer up that value. There's, just, there's no way to get to the valuable services if we don't charge more for them. The pricing question comes up a lot, Susan, with accountants and CPAs around how do we justify price increases or justifying value pricing or justifying what we're doing for the price that we're charging? So where would you start with that? You must have a lot of these conversations too. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, I think Ron Baker would call it the value conversation, <laughs> right? Yeah. So um, yeah, that's a great place to start is, you know, becoming a student of his. He's, you know, obviously the father of value pricing and has a lot of great resources and just learning how to ask the questions and get you thinking about that. Um, for me, you know, when people come to me with pricing questions, I really start with contemplating what are we doing, you know, in the background that the client doesn't see, you know, the, the client doesn't see that we're spending endless hours 
looking for tax strategies that might help them, that we're constantly on, um, you know, CPEs trying to learn more about the tax code of how we can leverage certain things, you know, for their benefit, um, that we are, you know, investing in technology resources and training to make sure that our work is at the top quality. So it, most of these things, you know, our, our clients just think, you know, it's magical, right? Like these things just happened and it's magic and your tax return comes out. But it's, that's not the case. You know, there is a high level of um, intellect and knowledge that is required to do this work. We have to start talking to them on the front end when we're meeting with clients or even if they're existing clients, when we're meeting with them throughout the year to explain and help them to understand all the things we're doing that add value. So when they get the invoice, they say, I am so glad that you are my accounting partner, that you're my, you know, my tax partner. Like this is such a valuable service. I'm happy to pay this in. So the accountants have a really important role to play, Susan, don't they, in educating their clients on the way they work, the way they price, the way their firm is set up, the way they're going to operate together. Talk to us a little bit about some of the considerations there or the boundaries or what needs to be said. Yeah, uh, communication. Uh, it's, it, I constantly say that good accounting is 90% communication. So yes, we need information, but communication is the key. So really setting forth expectations, explaining to your client on the front end, this is how my processes work. This is what you can expect from um, the initial phase of the project. Who's going to be doing what? What are the objectives? What information is required? And then here's the team of people who are going to manage it. Here are their roles. This is what they do. This is how they're going to do it. Explaining it all up front, 100% transparent with them and making sure that they understand it and that they also understand that it's a reciprocal relationship. So this is not one-sided. This isn't just, hey, we're going to come in and do all this. They have to understand they've got to give information. They have to respond. They have to read. You have to read. <laughs> you know, this is probably like a common complaint among all accounts, right? The clients don't read my emails. It's true. So we have got to impress upon the client. <clears throat> we expect you to read our emails and respond to quote. This is important. So it's clarifying those expectations. Same on any other type of process that, you know, it is uh, standard in your, your firm. Onboarding is going to work like this. A tax return is going to work like this. The financial statements and financial reports are going to be delivered like this. What can you expect? That is really important. And then the expectations in return. And that just clarifying that for people and, and making sure that they understand on the front end what that should look like. And if things don't work out like the right way, how we're going to follow up and you know how it escalates and all of that stuff has to be defined in the beginning. Well, you've already said a ton of things that accountants I've used in the past have not shared with me. It's generally, here's the proposal, here's the cost, we'll do this, this, and this. It's not about how we do it. It's not about why we do it. It's not about how we work. It's not about expectations. So how can accountants get that so wrong in not sharing that information? Is that an arrogance? Is that an ignorance? Is that a, it's the way we've always done it? I just don't think they have time. I think that's part of the issue is they don't have resources. Yeah. So again, the, you know, the thing is, is that they're not charging enough to go get the people to support the processes. Okay. Yeah. That's part of the issue here is, is that, you know, so now the partner has to do all of the things that are associated with the project. So they're managing it and they're doing the strategy and they're following up on the accounting work and they're, and they're trying to get their, train their staff on how to do stuff. Like you have to figure out how to build standardized processes in your firm so that those things can be delegated and replicated by somebody else. I was going to ask you why it's important that firms create these standardized processes, these SOPs, we sometimes call them, don't they? Why should they do that? And have you got any examples of those? The main reason it's important is 
because enterprise value is in your own firm, which every firm is trying to grow their own enterprise value, is, is that we're trying to minimize the reliance upon the owners. I mean, that's that's a business 101, right? So why are accountants trying to reverse that? It's like, I want to be the most important person in my firm. And I mean, <laughs> it's, it's sort of crazy. It's, it's interesting because it's like a dichotomy of thinking. We're trying to help our business owners to not be critical in their firms, right? That's how we build scalable companies. And yet our philosophy is in reverse. It just doesn't make any sense. So we as accountants have to build these processes that are standardized, get the stuff out of our heads into a format where other people can do it, train them up, teach them how to do it, and then let them run it. So that's the key is, is that if you're going to build and scale your firm, you have to have standardized processes. So a few that I can think of off the top of my head where they've been extremely effective here is onboarding. Oh, onboarding. There's a lot to onboarding. There's a big sigh there, Susan. <laughs> it is. It is, a, it is an intensive process. Um, it's important for two reasons. The first is, is that we've got to collect information in a timely and orderly manner in order to move the project along. It's, it's critical. Otherwise, we're not going to meet the objectives in the time frame that we set. It just won't happen. So someone has to be managing that. So those process has, processes have to be really solid. The other thing is, is it influences the customer's experience. So if we have a dedicated person to making sure that this onboarding is happening timely, someone's getting follow-up emails, they're getting you know, 30, 60, 90-day check-ins, give us feedback, how is communication, how are these teammate members working out, you know, following up throughout, it changes their experience in working with us. And so it really serves two different purposes. You know, we are um, creating something that's replicatable, you know, that's a word. And then we're also enhancing the experience they have in working with us. That makes sense. Martin Bissett, my co-host and myself have commented more than once on how accountants are great at telling their clients what to do, but they don't do it themselves. So they'll ask a client, have you got standard operating procedures? Have you got this process and this? And the client might turn around and say, well, do you have that? Do you have a pricing strategy? Do you have a finance strategy? Do you have a tax? Well, no, but this is not us. It's you. No, you get it right yourself. Then you can tell me to do it. Is there a bit of that? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yes. Again, that's because I don't know why, but the practitioner has failed to take what business knowledge they have and apply it to their own business. They, I just, maybe they don't view it like a business. Maybe they just don't look at it that way. I used to feel like there was this, um, you know, I guess the way that I was sort of raised up as an accountant, there was always this sort of like the business owners here, the accountants here, and we're like subservient in some way to the business owner. And when I, I guess I was like, had an epiphany or something. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm a business owner. A moment of revelation. Right. It's like, what am I doing? This is crazy. You're a business owner. I'm a business owner. We're the same. We're peers. It's just, you're great at selling whatever it is you're selling or recruiting or who knows what, right? And I'm great at accounting, but we both run businesses. I can take the information that I've learned in my business, apply to you. I can take the information I learned from your business and apply it to me. But it's a business mindset. Like, yes, this is a business. Running a CPA firm is a business first and foremost. And it's interesting because I think that, you know, <laughs> accountants sort of like focus on the practicing side of it. For me, the number one role in our company is the first thing we are is we're a sales and marketing organization. That's what we are first and foremost. I'm just thinking though, Susan, we have 25,000 accounting practitioner listeners to this show, and a lot of them will be in employed positions. They're not actually running the firm. They're not running a business. They are part of the rank and file. They may be fianas, managers, directors down the food chain, if you like. So they're not entrepreneurial in that respect, but they do need to be 
thinking like a business owner, they do need that commercial acumen to be able to advise their clients in the right way. Well, I mean, what's their future? I mean, that's what you need to be thinking of is, is that, I mean, everyone is a future advisor to a business owner. It's just a matter of whether you take ownership of that um, advisor position and develop it and go seek the, you know, go seek the mentoring and the education to assume that role. So, I mean, that's what every future, that's what every CPA is right now, whether you're at the, at the bottom as a staff or you're a senior manager, your future is to become the advisor to the business owner. How important is it that accountants require their customers to conform, Susan, to, there's an education part, I get that, but forcing them, getting them to jump through hoops, but making them do the things they need to do so the accountant can serve them in the best way. Yeah, uh, critical. Yeah, so it, it's really interesting. I Again, it just kind of goes back to this whole like, Accountants are people pleasers. Like we don't want to tell the client no. We're afraid to disappoint them. We we have no problem letting them tell us how to run our businesses. Like, well, I don't want to deal with six people. I want to only deal with one person. Like, well, that's not how our processes are configured. What are we going to do? We don't want to lose the client. We have to have real conversations, business owner to business owner, right? Um, I don't, you know, go into the grocery store and tell somebody, you know, I don't want to put my groceries on the conveyor belt and I don't want. You have to conform to the systems and processes that are there. Same with if you go to the movie theater or any other business. I don't understand the the mentality of CPAs who literally get pushed around by their clients. We have to be firm and we have to be clear and we have to explain to them why the processes are important to them. It makes sure that things don't get balled through the cracks, that we conduct all the right quality checks for you, that we are maintaining the communication protocols. There's a variety of things that are necessary in order to make sure that things happen the way they do. Otherwise, exceptions are to the rule are how things go wrong. And ultimately, that's what leads to fines and penalties, disappointed customers, mad customers. I mean, it just goes, you know, on and on. It's a, down, it's a spiral. Well, you reminded me of the BMWs, as we call them here, those clients that are bitches, moaners, and whiners. Clients <laughs> that you'd rather not have. So how would you advise accountants to address those clients that refuse to conform or, or play the game? Perhaps? Yeah, I think you just have to let them go. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you can have a conversation, but if they just won't conform, then I think it's, we have to realize that we have a business to run too. And if it's just noise in our business and it's, you know, the whole 80, 20 rule, right? This client's probably taking up 80% of your time and it's 20% of your revenue or profits, probably not worth it. So there has to be a little bit of a reality check here. You know what I mean? Like having some real honest conversations with ourselves and, you know, I know this is like, I've had these conversations with other firm owners where they'll be like, well, yeah, but they're like a family friend or it's, you know, it's a, it's a family member of a big, you know, one of our partners and sorry, guys, are we running a business here or is this a nonprofit? I mean, I guess you get to choose what you want to do, but I think we just have to get real about it and, and fire the people who don't fit. (laughs) There's a lot of courage required to fire a client. I can just hear the accountants uh freaking out right now at the thought of losing some revenue and that's part of the fear and the mindset you spoke about yeah i think so i think the i think the thing is though if they probably went back and actually looked at the profit that those customers are yielding it's probably not that much you know for the amount of time and resources that they consume in the organization and stress i mean who can put a price on that right i mean and part of the fear susan is the confrontation, the honest conversation that you referred to, that's not easy for accountants that are not used to those kind of tricky, vital conversations. You're right. So they've got to practice. You've got to practice. You just have to practice, you know, practice on starting these conversations about um, even, I think a lot of it starts with the advisory 
and the selling, right? So, hey, I'm doing this for you. We have scope creep. We're going to have to charge you more. We're doing these extra tasks for you. So if you start small with some of these things, you sort of gain the courage to have bigger conversations. So uh, it is a process. It's a learning. I mean, this is not something where just out of the gate, I think somebody's like, okay, I'm ready to take on all the big conversations in my firm and you know get rid of all these terrible clients. I think um, there's a lot of reformation we have to do in baby steps to get to the bigger, more impactful changes. Susan, this is terrific stuff for accountants that uh, may have lost sight of the basics. And we don't apologize here for looking at the basics. They seem so obvious in some ways, but we know there are so many CPAs, practitioners that are not doing this. So uh, I'm going to ask you one more question to finish about how to use the standardizing process information that you're talking about here and these uh, ways of dealing with clients to bring value to those clients and to the firm. Just before that, if people want to find out more about you and the great stuff that you do, what's a good way for them to reach? Well, best way to find out more about me is to go to our CPA or firm, mbgcpa.com. That's our CPA firm website, where everyone can email me to um, sbryant at mbgcpa.com. Best way to reach me is uh, via email um, or connect with me on LinkedIn. I love getting engaged in conversations that way as well. So, Why would other accountants reach out to you? Oh, uh, there's so much information to share. Um, I, I want to be a resource to the accounting community. Uh, I think there's a lot of practitioners, you know, CPAs who start businesses, you know, start their firms, and um, they're sort of lost. They don't know how to set up these processes, you know, the best practices. They they don't know where to begin and they're doing everything wrong. <laughs> I know because I've done all the wrong things. <laughs> so uh, I can help them to avoid all the pitfalls as they grow and to build that scalable and really profitable firm, you know, and, and let's face it, we're not, we don't want to do this for nothing. You know what I mean? We're taking a lot of risk in serving these clients. So everyone needs to make it worth their while. You should make money being a CPA. Love it. Susan, this has been terrific. Just finish with some words of advice for accountants who want to standardize their process a little bit more and maybe justify it to themselves as well as the clients about how that brings value to everybody. Well, the value to the client is, is that they understand it, they learn, and they know what to expect. So they're not surprised. So there's no panics at tax time. There is no um, uncertainty about what you're doing and what value you bring. They understand it because they understand the regimented nature of what it is you do. So they, it's predictable to them. I mean, we all love things that are predictable. We want them to work. For the CPA, uh, the value to them is that they don't have disruptive processes. Things run smoothly. There's no productivity issues or production issues. Um, their own staff is less stressed. Um, there's no fire drills or fires to put out around you know, tax time. So there's, there's value on both sides. Um, to making that conformity occur. And it's easier to onboard new staff, isn't it? If you've almost got a manual of this is the way we work, this is the way we handle conversations like this, uh, you can recruit better people that way. Yes, and retain them, right? So yeah, train them, teach them your way. Who are we? What do we do? I mean, it's funny because one of my most effective um, job posts that's, that's ever posted, we literally said, this is who we are and this is who we're not. So don't apply if this is what you think because we don't want you. <laughs> so, um, and hired one of the best people ever because it resonated with them. Like, we don't have timesheets, but we don't do that here. We don't build by the hour. That's not who we are. So we want you to become a great accountant. We don't want you to focus on tracking every 15 minutes of your time. We want you to make a difference for our clients. It's a mindset. It's a difference. It's a philosophy change, but it is, it is what the, it's what the talent wants. You know what I mean? So create a system, create a firm, 
where other people come and they are going to be inspired to do great work. Now, whatever that means to you. That's a great call to arms. Susan Bryant, thank you so much for your passion and your insights today. Well, thanks for having me, Rob. I appreciate it. So it's Thursday, it's Here's What Works for accounting practitioners all over the world listening to the Accounting Influencers podcast. We want to help you do your job better, be more promotable, be better leaders, better managers, serve your clients better. And we've been having a little mini series in these Thursday sessions on Here's What Works around executive presence. And let me ask you, how do people react when you walk into a room? How do people react when you show up on a a Zoom or a Teams or a video call? When you say something in a meeting, what is people's reactions to you? And this speaks to presence, particularly in a corporate environment, in a working environment, speaks to executive presence. And we've been doing a a little mini series on corporate executive presence for accounting professionals. And this works wherever you are in your world. If you're in the fintech world, the software world, serving accountants, you want to deal at their level, you want that gravitas, you want to be listened to, you want attention, you want to be relevant to what they're doing. So we started off by saying what works for executive presence with a couple of tips on being more intentional with your message so you're clear, you are on point, what you say counts, and cutting out the non-words like you know, like, kind of, sort of, I think, I mean. Those words, um, they don't add anything to your message. In fact, they dilute your message. In the second, we talked about what works with gravitas and the different elements of gravitas there in terms of the way you uh, act and conduct yourself. We talked about communication, how you speak and communicate. A fast, high-pitched voice is, doesn't have as much gravitas as a lower voice and a more measured voice. And we also mentioned appearance. It speaks to how you look, doesn't it? What you wear, the car you drive, the look of your business card, and that exuding some kind of confidence with your physical presence. And today we're just going to unpack executive presence a little bit more. So you're more mindful of this in being a leader so that you are more listened to and influential and persuasive in the ideas that you sell in the opinions When you're working with clients, you want to be that trusted advisor, so you want them to pay attention to you, to to adhere to your recommendations, to take action on your courses of uh, advice that you're giving them so that they know it will make a difference. And for this, you need to be influential, persuasive, you need presence. So we know that a person showing executive presence, uh, they have some kind of authority. They've got that weight of personality, they've got a mixture of qualities, that uh, just makes people take notice. And I'm going to break it down for you into another three ways of looking at gravitas. There's lots of different models of gravitas. You can Google it. You'll get wrapped up in it very quickly. But very practically thinking, first thing about style. This is a very observable thing. We talk about style as being something you can't put your finger on because it's what people see and experience about you quickly, but not always immediately. It's that first impression. And it's a blend of mannerisms, interpersonal behavior, the confidence that you exude your image. And whether you like it or not, we've all got a certain style. We've got a way of being that we fall into by a default setting. So what is your style? It's part the way you dress. It's part the way you look. It's part the way you carry yourself. It's part the way you talk. But what's important with style is it must be congruent. If you think about your character on the inside as what you stand for, what's really valuable to you, what are those principles 
that you adhere to? What are the rocks and the non-negotiables in your life? Well, on the outside of that is your personal brand. And that's all the outward manifestations of what's on the inside. So the way you look and talk and everything you write down and everything you say and everything people hear about you and everything people see, that's your personal branding messages. And then there's your reputation, which is what people think when they come into contact with all of that. And style is rather subjective, but it's important that it's congruent with people knowing and believing certain things about you and your role and what's expected of you and uh, what they get from you. And if there's any kind of incongruence or dissonance between what people expect from you and what style you're exuding, then people judge you as, uh, what's that? Not duplicitous, that's a strong word, but people think something doesn't ring true. In English, we say, it's you're not sound. Sound is apparent, we sometimes say. People are solid where you get what you get and you know what you're going to get because these people are very congruent. So with with some leaders, there's a perceived problem with the things that they're saying and doing and their own personal agendas, the thing they're feeling or their underlying substance character style. So if people perceive any disingenuous intentions on your part, any ulterior motives, they'll tune out, they'll write you off, they'll not pay attention. So you've got to pay attention to your style and what are you exuding with style. Next thing is substance. It's a little bit more uh, weighty. It's behind the style. And this is made up of your social presence, your gravitas. We've spoken about this before. They say it's a cultivated way of being. And it sounds quite woolly, doesn't it? But a sense of maturity, uh, a strategic mind, the capacity to integrate, bring other people in, bring your own character and virtues into play, just being very genuine and authentic, wisdom, confidence, composure, thinking strategically, as I said, a big part of gravitas and executive presence is the ability to think beyond your tactical and your confines of your office and your team and your areas of expertise and think wider about the firm and about the business that you're working with, the the bigger picture, if you like. So, Thinking about the needs of more stakeholders, shareholders, the members of the board, other bigger players in this, that's part of substance. And if leaders have style but not substance, uh, the phrase is empty suits. Uh, They look great, but they don't walk the walk. They talk the talk. It sounds good from the outside, but it's not really genuine. They don't walk the walk. So this phrase, empty suits, means you've got to get your style right, that overt aspect of presence and the energy and the assertiveness and the way you connect with others, but you've got to have some depth of it, some authenticity, some genuineness underneath. And this comes out a bit more when you're speaking, you're not rushed, you're not contradicting yourself, you're not waffly, you're clear, you're concise, and people trust you, they rate you. It's a cultivated quality of maturity, credibility, temperament, having a vision and a message that inspires people, being responsive, respectful, not taking up people's time, not waffling on and on, hogging the microphone, taking a pair of time, and it being all about you. You sense the bigger picture. You're getting on board with other people's opinions, attitudes, actions. That's substance. And then the final pillar, if you like, of executive presence is character. And I mentioned before, this is what's on the inside. People don't see this, but when you're congruent with your character, you build a lot of trust, you foster a lot of goodwill. So think on the inside of your emotional intelligence, your authenticity, your courage, 
what's important to you, your sense of justice and truth, your inner core, those personal traits and beliefs that dominate your thinking. And character, they say, is who you are from an internal perspective. And if you are the same on the outside as you are on the inside, that's congruence of character. So people want to know that your character is true, that they see what they get and they get what they see. And in here is your, your optimism, your integrity, your discretion, your honesty, your vulnerability in a way, your priorities, your intentions, your motives. Are you thinking about you and your needs and your win, your side of the negotiation table? Or are you thinking about other people as well? So you've got to identify with people, resonate with them, make them feel like they're understood, but you've also got to convey your messages with gravitas, with authenticity, with wisdom. We say in England, we say clout, uh, some heft, some cachet, some truth. So although these things might sound woolly, uh, we're sharing it with you on this Here's What Works section for accounting professionals and those associated around them so that you are more compelling with what you're saying. We're communicating all the time, and often it's not face-to-face -face in this pandemic world. We're on Zoom, we're on Teams, we're doing video messages, we're on phone calls. So be more mindful of this stuff. So you beef up your individual executive presence, your corporate gravitas. You can do this. You get your mind right, your emotions right, your physical presence right, and, and here, your style, your substance, your character, they all go into the mix. And there's lots of different dimensions. Bring it all together, though, and be more intentional with it, and you will find that people take notice when you walk into a room. People sit up a little straighter. People pin their ears back when you speak. They want to know what you've got to say because they know you don't speak lightly and frivolously. You've got something of substance to say. So that is what works with executive presence. We may come back to this in future topics. Uh, we're going to drop back onto employer brand and making sure your firm is a great place to work. And you're rolling that as an employee and you're rolling that as an employer because we did a, an episode a few weeks ago on what works with employer brand websites and how websites are conflicted with trying to attract clients for your accounting event and trying to attract staff and team members. So we'll revisit that again. But for now, that is what works on executive presence. Go away, be more weighty, have more gravitas, command a room command an audience and you will get far more things done far more quickly with everything you're trying to do. You're listening to the Accounting Influencers Podcast, cutting through the crap to bring you the very best interviews, insights and wisdom from the planet's most influential people in the accounting and fintech world with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. Well, welcome to our special guest interview today, and I'm thrilled to have with me today one of the legends in the accounting world. It's Gary Seamus. Gary, good day to you. Good day to you. A legend might be overstating it a bit, but thank you anyways. <laughs> well, given the track record of what you've done, Gary, you've come pretty close. For people that haven't come across you and your name, give us a, a, a biopsy. Is that the right word? A biography in a few sentences of what you've got to and what's brought you to this place? I actually went to the skin doctor this morning for a biopsy. <laughs> so uh, no, we're just going to do a we're just going to do a biography. How's that? So uh, that's great. Hey, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna this I, mean, I I could spend a lot of time on this, uh, but I'm not. I'm just going to give it a quick read. Uh, and really, going a million years back, I mean, I was going to be a doctor. That didn't work out for me. I ended up as a uh, going into accounting. My dad was in accounting, and I said decided to try it. I liked it. Um, so I had to rechannel myself. I had to pivot when I was very young from a biology background to an accounting background. 
But my first job was with uh, uh, one of the big eight accounting firms, Touche Ross in Atlanta. I was there for three years. And then in 1981, I went back and joined my dad's very small practice in Cleveland, Ohio. And between 1981 and 2015, for 34 years, I ran that firm. And we took that firm from $225,000 in business to about $100 million. Uh, we had a very broad advisory focus. We had some vertical focuses. And uh, we had a great run. Um, uh, we sold the firm in uh, 2015 to BDO. And at that point in time, BDO was 104 years old and was the largest transaction in their history. So it was a big deal. And I think in a lot of ways led to BDO's uh, current strategy in terms of their M&A strategy. Uh, but I went to BDO for a short time and it was a bad fit. Nothing wrong with BDO. It just, I was very entrepreneurial and they were very bureaucratic and they had to be, and I wasn't going to change. So I was there for a short period of time. And five and a half years ago, uh, decided I wanted to continue working. So I launched Winding River Consulting. And we're a consulting firm that focuses almost exclusively in the accounting industry. We do leadership development training. Uh, we did digital marketing. And then I, uh, I help firms in terms of strategy and, uh, and visioning. Thank you for that. And the phrase, been there, done that, would certainly apply to Gary Seamus in the accounting world. And you speak very much into the world of managing partners now, don't you, Gary, in your current role? Yeah, um, I do. Uh, my partner, uh, he'll deal with uh, senior marketing people at his firms, but I, I, I generally only work with managing partners. How has the managing partner role changed over the years? Well, we're trying to change it. I'm not sure it's changed as much as it should, uh, but we are at, uh, through my leadership development, we are trying to change it. Uh, um, you know, I always believe that uh, the focus is the managing partner should be working on the business, not in the business. So, uh, so that's the big pivot I'm really trying to get people to understand that their time is much more valuable in leveraging all the people working for them than it is uh, them spending an hour on a client. So we're trying to uh, teach them that, and we're also trying to give them the, the right tools to be successful in doing that. And that tools is you know contemporary issues, which obviously contemporary, so they're going to change. But then there's things like skills, uh, you know, what kind of skills do you need, human capital, things like that. So we're trying to define that. You know, I always joke, you know, with the idea, you know, how did you get to be the managing partner? Well, you're the person who went to the bathroom when they had the vote <laughs> and you came back. And the reality is, you know, most people, you became accountants because you wanted to become accountants. You didn't become an accountant because you wanted to be the managing partner of an accounting firm. Mm. Uh, so most accountants are just not really trained with that skill set to be managing partners. You know, and thus, I think we could really make a difference in those that want to try and educate themselves better at doing it. But then there's just a big weakness there in terms of their ability, ability to do it. And, and, you know, maybe getting right back to your question, you know, you know, you know, in this last two and a half years, um, has leadership ever been more important in this last two and a half years um, in, in how we lead our firms going forward with these just huge, huge major pivots that happened in, uh, you know, overnight? Um, so, so there was, so managing partners had to be pretty focused and they had to be pretty competent in what they're doing. So um, I think that their need was uh, uh, maybe acerbated or accelerated or now really uh, maybe better understood how important they are to the organization. And you talk to managing partners a lot. If we were to ask them, what is top of your agenda right now? What's on your list? That, those are the kind of things we're going to dig into today. But just before we go into a little more detail on what the priorities are for managing partners, is it harder being a managing partner now, Gary, do you think, than ever before? Or has it always been tough? Um, I, I think it's always been tough. You know, uh, you know you're still, you know, Harry Truman, the buck stops with you, um, former American president for your audience. Um, we do uh, have an international uh, audience, but everyone yeah, knows okay, how it's okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, so, yeah, but, but so, so the challenges have changed. 
you know, and I'm sure everybody's going to say, oh, the challenges are much more difficult now than they were then. But when back then, they probably were saying the same thing you know, about that. I mean, it's people, it's leading an organization of professionals and the real challenges. I mean, getting to back what I just talked about is that most of the people leading it just have never trained. They don't have the skill sets. They learn by, uh, they learn by trial and error. And I think there's a better way to do it than trial and error. And that's what uh, I'm really interested in trying to help firms understand that. And we'll ask you later on what you do to help managing partners and there's three cohorts of managing partners that you've identified, which is interesting to look at. But let's talk about the managing partner priority list, Gary. This is very much your area of expertise. You've got six things on your list. So let's talk through them one by one. What are you going to start with? Well, um, so so where did this come from? Uh, um, I, I've done a presentation for years and I really call it uh, you know, where the profession is heading um, in the in the U.S., uh, the AACPA, the guy who runs it, Barry Melanson, I've seen him do this presentation many times, and he talks about the state of the industry. And I, and having been an accountant my whole life, or being a business guy, it's like I'm more important to me. It's more interesting where we're going, not where we are. So, so I kind of de- designed uh, this program, and now it's gone through some evolutions. And uh, I really talk about you know where the profession is heading. So, so if I have a list, okay, the first two items come from one fact, and uh, that is. Uh, this whole idea of, of a leverage model within the organization, partners on the top, and you're working your way down to uh, junior staff at the bottom. It's your classic hierarchy, isn't it? Yeah, it's your triangular. Uh, but what's happened is we're finding is that uh, because of uh, maybe the lack of talent, in uh, at least in the United States, what we're seeing is that these firms are very challenged to fill that model with the right staffing. And uh, they're very challenged. And to me, it's probably the biggest challenge. Number one, it's your ability to service your existing clients. Number two, to have capacity to potentially grow at new clients, now, which are really important to the organization. So um, if I'm running a firm today, uh, I'm trying to say, well, how do I, uh, uh, how do I re-engineer that, uh, that historic model that's been around? And really, there's two ways to do it. You know, one is the whole element of outsourcing, you know, using professionals around the world. And this kind of gets back to the uh, early 2000s book by Thomas Friedman, The World is Flat. And, um, you know, and why can't you buy services uh, in other countries uh, uh, for what you're doing? So um, it, it became something that was uh, maybe an outlier 15 years ago. And now I think it's a significant source going forward and using talent around the world through outsourcing. Um, and it's more accepted and there's more uh, avenues to do that. The second element is process. And we, when I had my CPA firm, we spent a lot of time on process. And I don't think firms do a very good job of that. Uh, you know, what we do is we're really good at adding things to process, but we're really bad at taking things away from process. So uh, so I think uh, uh, a look at process that's not going to be at all tainted, it's going to be, a, a, you know, no brownies, no limits could be really beneficial to firms. You know, and, that, and, and what goes into that, too, is risk profile, your risk analysis. And you now you can look at things like a child's tax return. In the United States, there's, there's really no risk. And uh, and you know why even review the return? I mean, you know, probably not worth the time, but it's part of the built-in process. Is it really worth doing it? So things like that are really important. Um, you know, number three, this has been thrown upon us uh, in a in a very uh, aggressive way, and that's the culture changes because because of the pandemic and this shift to virtual office. And there's all kinds of things that are coming out of this thing, and you know, the idea of teams working together and and. Uh, um, and, you know, the fact that once we became virtual, we're never going to go back. And then this has implications in terms of office space and where you hire your people. 
where in the past, you know, it was uh, everybody worked for you was, with a, was within a short radius of where your office is. Well, that doesn't have to be the case anymore. So you could be hiring people all over the place, but how do they integrate into your firm? How do you service clients? So this whole idea of understanding your culture and trying to optimize your culture um, as we've gone through these huge shifts. Uh, the next element is the shift to advisory. And, and I find this really interesting. And uh, um, I think the entire uh, accounting profession in the United States had it wrong, but I think they're finally starting to get it right. And I'm happy to say I've been beating on them for years. And, and what happened was uh, uh, there was a total misnomer. And the misnomer was uh, what is advisory? And I really believe in the United States, uh, uh, what, what people and firms were thinking was advisory was really uh, uh, consulting. Um, so when you go work with your clients, you do their audit, you do their tax court work, and now you're supposed to provide them this third element, which is this consulting, telling them how to run their business better. And to that extent, there was a couple of companies in the United States that created uh, uh, consulting, uh, learning development that they would bring to your office, and they would try and you know, retrain your people and go into uh, more consulting. And I think that's all wrong. Uh, having run a firm for all these years, I had a lot of smart people working for me and they wanted to be accountants. They didn't want to, they didn't want to be consultants and they were certainly smart enough to be consultants, but you know, they chose to be accountants. And I just saw an incredibly difficult road and a return of investment that was dismal in trying to take a really good accountant and turn them into a consultant. So I don't think it really worked. And I think what the shift to advisory really is, is looking at additional services you can be adding uh, to your portfolio that's going to benefit your relationship and benefit your client. And every firm's different. It's not the same list for each firm, but, it, it, but you can imagine things like in the United States, it could be payroll or, or it can be cybersecurity or it could be wealth management. And a lot of it depends upon your firm. Um, but um, being able to add these additional resources to your firm. So at my firm, we were really successful at doing that. We were, and I think, uh, uh, it wasn't like we were smarter than anybody else, but I just was really good at copying. And if you really think about the big four accounting firms today, are they really accounting firms today? And the answer is no, they're not even close to an accounting firm today. They're, they're a broad financial advisory service firms that happens to do accounting and tax as well. So I think that's what the new model looks like. So I think firms need to look as to what they can be adding to this model. But when they do that, um, you know, how do they do it? And there's really three ways to do it. It's either they buy a firm that's doing it, that's going to be a good fit. The second way is they grow it and start doing it themselves, which is uh, uh, takes longer, but, you know, you control the, uh, I guess, the output. And the third way is to partner with somebody who's doing it. So the shift to advisory, I think, is really, uh, uh, really important to firms. And when I had my firm, I will tell you at the end, I realized that, uh, that my advisory practices, A, made more money as an organization. They were better businesses than the accounting firm. And B, I sold all of them. I sold them at the higher multiple than the accounting. So, you know, people ask me, what would you have done differently? And the accounting firm was the engine that drove everything, but I would have spent more time focusing on my advisory practices because they were more valuable uh, as an asset to my other to my partners. Uh, number five on the list is growth. And I think there's been some big pivots in growth uh, up until 10 years ago. Uh, every firm grew the same way and they grew because of relationships and it was going to the country club or it was going to the uh, uh, to the social events and it was meeting people and some people were good and liked it and you know you would create your network and that's how we grew organizations but it's very different today uh, with this whole idea of uh, MA as a component of a tremendous amount of MA opportunity in the United States in terms of consolidation. But I will tell you in the United States, what happens in my mind, it's more serendipitous. Hey, I want to open our office in Sarasota. Oh, I found a firm that was interested. Let's figure out how to do it. 
as opposed to finding the right firm with the right characteristics, it's the right fit and being disciplined in doing that. But the whole idea of M&A uh, and adding to your firm that way is out there um, and uh, uh, it's a possibility. And then the, th the second element, which is new, is this whole idea of growing through digital and growing through your digital presence, uh, through content, through social media, uh, through being involved in organizations online, that, uh, you know, places that you would want to hang out. And uh, we've seen some firms in the United States have gone incredibly well, 100% digital, and they don't focus on M&A and they don't do relationships. So um, I really think it's really understanding those three elements and uh, how best to use them for your organization or where your best comfort is. And then the last thing on your list is your exit strategy. You're a new managing partner and what should be on your list is what's my exit strategy down the road. And I just don't think firms look at that early enough and long enough. And I think it really has you know, terrible repercussions. Um, and you know the repercussions are you have to sell to somebody else. You don't have the right team with you. Um, you know, are you building the right organization to succeed itself internally? Um, and, you, and you don't wait till somebody's two year out to an exit strategy. New managing partner, you know, what's his exit strategy 10 or 12 or 20 years from now? That happens on day. So that's, that's my list. And as you can see, you know, saying, you know, hard to be a managing partner, it's a pretty tough list. And I'd say that's a full-time job plus one. I can think of another 10 things that might also make the case to be on the list, Gary. What else might we throw in the mix there to add to your six before we deep dive into a few of these six? Oh, there. Succession, talent. That kind of comes in capacity. You know, the talent really goes to that model and your inability to get talent. And the exit really goes to the succession planning. So I think, you know, we do cover those. But there's other things on the list, too. I think a managing partner, I mean, probably if you really think about it, what's the most important job? The most important job is execution, but prioritization of the execution. What are you going to execute? You could add 50 things to this, but, you know, number 50, should that be number one? I don't know. You know, that's where you have to decide. Let's dip a little bit into culture, Gary. We're in a remote world. You mentioned hybrid. Talking about human capital, it is hard to drive culture in remote settings. Just unpack human capital as a model for us and let us know what kind of things managing partners are thinking about here. Oh, um, so, so one thing, you know, on, on the good side of it is they're thinking is I can get talent anywhere right now. Yeah. Before the talent was in this 30 or 40 mile radius or kilometer radius in my office, that was that was the way it was. And now uh, there's no reason why, you know, an accounting firm in Atlanta can't fire, hire somebody in Los Angeles because we're used to working that way. Uh, so that's one thing. But on the other hand of it, too, there's no reason why your employees can't leave and be hired by somebody in Los Angeles or Atlanta. So what are you doing to protect your employees? So, so, so some of the things, you know, that I think are really important. Probably the number one thing that I think is important is this millennial or, or the next generation work culture. Um, I've said this many times before that the biggest uh, challenge in public accounting today is that accounting firms are owned by baby boomers. And those are people in the United States caught between, you know, like maybe 58 and 75 or something like that. And they're populated by millennials. And best explained by a book a good friend of mine wrote named Rebecca Ryan. She wrote a book about millennials. The title of the book was live first, work second. And I show that book to a bunch of managing partners who are all baby boomers and they all start laughing and snickering. And I say, well, what would the title of the book be if you wrote the book? And we all know what the answer would be. It would be work first, live second. So, so you have these cultural collides there. So you want to succeed your practice? These millennials don't want to work first, live second. They want a practice that's going to allow them to live first and work second. So you're developing the right kind of model to them. That's imperative to your ability to succeed going forward from a cultural standpoint. 
Now, the other element that's really hard is just this whole idea. We always work in teams in this profession, and uh, and we always able to see the teams, touch the teams, go in a you know consult meeting with the team, and now the team is different because the team could be somebody in a different state or somebody who has childcare or somebody you know who's working from home because that's allowed right now. So, so, so are you creating the right kind of elements to your culture to maintain a culture that's going to uh, that's going to move forward? Whether it's a client service culture or it's an employee centric culture, you know, are you really doing the right things to do that? And I'll tell you, I mean, I'm not the expert on that, but there's a lot of people who spend a lot of time thinking about that. And if I was running an accounting firm today, I would be talking to some of those people and just trying to define what are the things I should be doing within the organization to keep talent, to want talent to be here. Uh, you know, to try and, uh, uh, you know, be a destination for talent in the future. One of the hot topics, Gary, is employer brand right now. Speaking to what you're saying, how do we set ourselves up as the firm of choice to work for? How do we externalize the good things happening in our culture to such an extent that we become very attractive to an external labor market? Have you got anything to say about that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, really, um, that's a really tough topic and. um and I really think it's a tough topic because individual firms have tough times, you know, creating that individual brand and the brands have a radius. Now, now that's changing. Okay. Because of this whole thing we just talked about, but the brands always had a radius and the radius was the city I live in or the city you live in, or maybe we have some other offices and maybe we grow this regionally, but it was really hard because we were competing against international firms that were able to create brands. Now, they were really good at creating brands. I'm not so sure they were good at delivering on the promise of the brand uh, because of their uh, just their size. And when I was at BDO, I saw this. Uh, these organizations are so large, tens and hundreds of thousands of employees, that they become bureaucratic. And, you know, how do you manage 100,000 people in, in a family-friendly situation? Well, you can certainly sit there and write you know, good copy on it and, and, and put that as part of your brand, but I'm not really sure they could deliver on it. And uh, um, so it, it, it's definitely a challenge, but I will say, you know, from my perspective, I think what firms will really get it are really smart can do this by using their digital pos uh, positioning and really focus on their, uh, their digital presence because these young people, they're all over that. That's so important to them. So the digital communities they're part of, you know, what they look like on their LinkedIn profiles, look at their, uh, uh, their uh, um, at their web pages and 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 do we have those right components in there? You know, so so in essence, a web page is really challenging because on the one hand, we always look at a web page as what? Well, this has changed. The web page just replaced our brochure. We always had a firm brochure, and we were happy to give it out. And once we finished it, you know, we were really ecstatic about it. But it had a time horizon of two or three years, and you have to redo it. You know, the ties got narrow, or the ties got wider, the lapels got wider, <laughs> women's. Uh, Skirts were long or short, you know, so you had to be more contemporary. So all that moved, okay, but it went originally moved to the internet or your digital, it really moved as a marketing tool aimed at clients. Now I think firms really have to look at this as a marketing tool aimed also at their talent as well, the firms that are smart. That's an excellent point because the modern day accounting firm website, apart from looking and sounding and promising the same as all the other accounting firm websites, it has... Two, conflict, two conflicting priorities in that it's trying to attract new clients. Here are our service lines. Here are our areas of expertise. Here are the niches that we work with. And it's also trying to attract new staff. Here's why this is a great place to work. Here's our culture. Here's what we're doing with diversity, equity, inclusion, and ESG. Here's our vacancies. 
And the clients don't want to read about your culture and your future staff don't want to read about your, your niches so much. So there's a lot for an accounting website to be doing these days. Yeah, you know, this kind of reminds me, you know, in the profession, and this is probably internationally through the profession, there's, a, there's always two sides. And the one cycle is firms are looking for clients and the other cycle is firms are looking for uh, talent. So right now I'm going to say pretty boldly that firms really don't care too much about clients. They got as many as they want and hard, not hard to get them, but they're really struggling with talent. So I remember when I had my firm, we started thinking about that and I'm thinking I have this marketing department that's really good. And I think we were really world-class. I remember going to head of our marketing and say, hey, can we pivot this? Can we start focusing on trying to do talent attraction instead of client attraction? And they really got excited about it because it was like, you know, yeah, that would be really fun. Let's do that. So we did that. So uh, recently, three weeks ago, we had a, uh, a conference that we did. It was a digital conference. We had 25 really major firms there, had that same discussion. And I asked the question to the uh, marketing directors at these firms, how many of you are like on the pivot right now toward talent? And two people raised their hand. And I was just thinking, you know, your talent is such a important element right now. You have these wonderful marketing departments you know, boy, it seems really smart to me is to try and use those marketing partners to start focusing on the talent side. Now, and maybe that's pivots to your webpage. So instead of your, uh, you know, your landing page being a client-centric landing page, now your landing page becomes more of an employee-centric landing page. So things like that. I spoke to a managing partner of a top 15 firm in, in the UK recently, and he was saying, he's been very candid with me and said the talent crisis is so acute right now that we've... We're on the verge of winning a very big contract with a very big client. And if we win this, I don't know what we're going to do. Well, but that gets get back to the really the very first thing that we talked about. And uh, if you look at United States statistics about people who are going into accounting, this isn't going to get better. So, um, you know, if we could kind of figure out how to maybe create some sex appeal into accounting, get people to go into it, it ain't going to change. And it's going the wrong direction. But why is that, Gary? You talk to somebody like you, you've been in this game a long time. You would say, hey, there's never been a better time to embark on an accounting career. But for whatever reason, people are not coming into the game, are they? I'll give you a bunch of reasons. Uh, the first reason, you know, the first reason is money, okay? And, uh, um, you know, young people, they, you know, for whatever reason and the way our societies go and, you know, successful people have money, you know, whether the Elon Musk, you know, or how they dominate, you know, what's going on there, they all want money. And, uh, and where are you going to make money if you're a young person? Well, that's pretty easy. You're going to go work for an investment banking company. You're going to work for a private equity. So, um, you know, I would say that a lot of the same uh, characteristics or skills that you would use to become an accountant are not too much different than you would with respect to uh, private equities of which there's 3,000 in the United States, or it's going to be, uh, you know, investment bankers or along those lines. And this started happening about 20 years ago, really with the rise of uh, technology. And a lot of people who would have been good accountants now are focusing on potentially going into technology. So I say that there's a lot of competition and I would say we don't do a very good job of competing. And now who would do a good job of competing for us? You're not gonna have one firm that's gonna make this happen. It's gonna be the American Institute of CPAs, you know, spending money trying to uh, you know, get a TV show, you know, um, you know, uh, it's going to be, uh, you know, something that's going to be uh, Netflix about accounts. There's a couple ones here and there, but they're always, always terrible. But, uh, you know, so, um, so, so what are we doing to promote that going forward? And because of less people in it, I think the financial opportunities have always increased as well. And then also I'll flip that in terms of starting salaries. 
you know, you go and you're really successful and you get a starting salary, even working for the best firms, in the, or the, you know, supposedly the best firms in the world, the big four, you know, what are they going to pay you? $75,000, something like that. You go work for one of the major law firms, you might start at $175,000, you know, for another two years of education. So I think we have a lot of things wrong in terms of our ability to track it. But the problem is, is that in order to fix it, first of all, you got to want to fix it. And second of all, the execution of the strategy is not going to change things for this managing partner next month. It's just not. So that's why I think if I had my list, I'm going back to this outsourcing process. How could I do the same things, taking you know, whatever risk is appropriate and spend less time on it? And can I use other smart people around the world you know, to, uh, to help me uh, create more capacity for what I'm doing? I think it's just so important to affirm moving forward those two elements. Gary, this is terrific. We're going to get you back on another episode and talk about private equity and mergers, acquisitions, the different accounting firm models. But just to finish, talk to us about the different things that Wine and River do with training managing partners, particularly the the three different cohorts that you work with and how you help them. Well, um, I started this program. We're going on our sixth year called Managing Partner Bootcamp. Uh, I've trained 100 people. Um, we must be doing a good job because we get more people and now we're getting more and more and more. This year we'll have uh, three classes and we'll have uh, uh, 36 people go through it. It's very unique. Uh, the only competitive program I would say is a program in Harvard that costs four times what Mars cost and there's 250 people and it lasts a week. We only have 12 people. Uh, it's, taught, it's taught by practitioners as well as skill set uh, experts. And uh, this coming year of the 36 spots, as of today, we have uh, 10, 26 of them sold. So we'll have 10 spots left for this year. We haven't started any of the programs this year. So the program is really good, I think. And uh, um, there's 16 classes. We teach those classes over two, three-day periods of time with a little bit in between. You have some books we'd like you to read that are foundational books for your uh, uh, for your for what you're doing. But um I, I, if I had to say the real element of it that really is the is the differentiators, there's only 12 people in a class. So it's very small, very boutique in terms of what we're doing. And it's not your academic style class you get with Harvard, is it? No, I mean, I teach a course on how to develop strategy and how to execute strategy. And um, this course, this managing partner priority list, I'm sure we'll go through that at some point. And we teach things like how to have a difficult conversation, how to build teams. So uh, those are the kind of elements that go into it. So uh, the good news, I guess, for your uh, for some of your audience is that uh, we're going to be doing it in Amsterdam this year. This is two and a half years in the making, all scheduled and set to go, and then the pandemic ruined everything. So we're going to go at it again, um, and it's going to be in September. It'll be again in Amsterdam. We try and have it a place people can get easy in and easy out. Um, and I'm going to be partnering with a friend of mine, a guy named Sandy Manson. Sandy is the He'll be the forming managing partner of Johnston Carmichael at the end of May. Sandy and I wrote a book together. We're good buddies. Uh, he likes what we're doing, and uh, we think we uh, there's a need for it. So we're going to, through Sandy, uh, launch Winding River Consulting and focus on that element of, of leadership development. Uh, we also, uh, we're, we're trying to launch a few other conferences. I used to own a conference that was very successful called uh, Winning is Everything. I own, owned it with a couple of colleagues. It was the largest practice management conference on the planet. We had it for 20 years and that was sunsetted. We have another one we're going to be doing called Winning Ways. It's going to be much more boutiques, much more small, much smaller. And that'll be in Atlanta, November 1st and 2nd this year, limited to 100 people. So we're testing a few things. And uh, when we did Winning is Everything, that was a big blown out conference with sponsors and all that. And I don't think people want to do that as much anymore. So we've kind of uh, trimmed this down to something that we think is more uh, uh, more palatable and uh, maybe more effective and better use of time. 
Uh, we do digital marketing through my partner, uh, David Toth. He's amazing. Example is uh, we have a 31-year-old client. Uh, he's had his business for five years. Um, he focuses on one vertical. He'll do $6 billion in business. Uh, he has 35 people working for him and they're all remote. I mean, this is just, and for us to see this uh, and work with him has been really interesting. And then our ability to learn from that and potentially inject that in other firms is keeping David really busy. So we're focusing time on there. And then the third element is, uh, is just uh, advisory. Uh, you know, I work with accounting firms on projects. Um, I just got off a huge project that was with, uh, it's called the largest consulting firm in the world. They needed some help in the accounting industry. So they ended up working with me. Um, um, and then I sit on advisory boards for accounting firms, uh, things like that. And your audiences for managing partners, Gary, you go after the, the would-be managing partners, those in the number two position, if you like, and then you go after the, the ones that have just got into role and then the more established ones. Is that correct? Yeah, well, that's through the more of the advisory where I'll sit on somebody's advisory board, meet with them on a regular basis. You know, one of the things that's become very popular in the United States, I don't like it, is where uh, uh, to do a firm retreat, uh, some of the firms will hire the uh, the consultant of choice, come in for one once a year, spend time with either a subset of partners or all their partners and talk about what's happening and then leave. I just don't like that. Uh, I like following things through. So when I'm able to sit on an advisory board with the firm and work with them on the progress moving forward um, and, and really create that culture of using outside advisory to help them influence what they're doing, whether I'm going to do it forever or not, probably not, but then, you know, they establish it and they can replace me with somebody down the road. But I, I, I really kind of really enjoy that. So that's what we do at Winding River. Uh, you know, you'll see June 1, we'll be opening up Winding River Europe, which will be, uh, Sandy lives in Aberdeen, Scotland. So uh, he'll be there and uh, he'll have access to what we're doing through our leadership development training and, and digital through David. And, uh, so that's, uh, that's kind of fun and that's uh, a work in progress. It's keeping you busy. Gary Shemis, thank you so much for your time and your passion today. You're welcome. This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. This has been the Accounting Influencers Podcast you've got this far. We thank you for tuning in, one of our 25,000 listeners all over the world. We're growing by a few hundred each week, and we really value your contribution, your patronage of the show, your accounting practitioners, and you people in the fintech world that serve them sell to them, sell through them. It is great to have you along for the journey. I've been Rob Brown and along with Martin Bissett, my co-host, we want to thank the guests for this week's show. Remember that on a Monday, you tune into the big show, which gives you the interviews, the news, and its practical applications for you in your life. And our practical Here's What Works section that comes out on a Thursday as well as a standalone episode. And remember our Saturday bonus, we're doing a series right now on The Price is Right. It's a play on the game show where we tackle that very prickly subject for accountants, CPAs, bookkeepers on pricing. How do you do it confidently? Now, remember, we know there are lots of podcasts out there. Some of them are very technical in nature. Some of them are very technological in nature, talking about cloud, digital, and everything else. We are a show based on performance for accounting practitioners. How can you sell more? How can you be more? How can you do more? How can you serve your clients better? How can you stay informed, build that commercial acumen and awareness that you need? Thank you for tuning in. It's part of your CPE, your CPD, Continued Professional Development and Education. So thank you to Earmark CPE for providing that for us. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you on next week's show. Remember also you've got the Saturday bonus coming up. We teach you the price is right. All the challenges and solutions to getting pricing totally sorted in your accounting practice. Have a great day.
This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett.